0: Well, here we are. Pastor Jim has been out of town this week, and I am here, and he has left me with a really easy assignment. (laughs) I am beginning to see a pattern here. I'm actually excited about this. We are in the middle of a series on doubt. We have been considering some of the big questions that come up as people consider the Christian faith. If you're exploring Christianity and trying to figure out what you think, our hope is that one of the questions that we've been talking about really scratches an itch for you, that it's something that you've been wondering about too. Because our goal, we can't really answer all of your questions, and you don't actually need all of them answered, but what we do hope to do is clear away at least some of the big barriers that stand in the way from you fully committing to Jesus. That's what we're trying to do here. But of course, we also know that these are the kinds of questions that aren't just for explorers, they're the questions that come up even for committed followers of Jesus. Uh, I know that I started following Jesus when I was a kid, but I didn't start having doubts until I was in my 20s. Some really hard stuff was happening uh, to people around me. I had a friend that walked away from the faith. Uh, There were some intellectual questions that I couldn't quite figure out. And it was kind of a a troubling time, a, a season where I wrestled a lot. And what I learned from that season of doubt was this, that the best way to address these kinds of questions, these challenges to your faith isn't to kind of shove them aside or or, or turn off your mind or just hold on to blind faith as if that was going to get you through. What really helped was to face those questions head on, to approach them with a a humble mind, with an open heart, and with an earnest desire for the truth. During my time of doubt, there were a couple of books that really helped me. I want to pass those recommendations on to you. The first was the reason for God By Tim Keller. This is a really a great book. Keller is a pastor in Manhattan, and he addresses kind of the the biggest questions that he uh, has raised for him with his highly educated secular audience in New York. Um, And what I loved about the book was that I never felt like Keller was dodging hard issues. Um, He was always taking things seriously. Uh, It would be no exaggeration to say that this book helped save my faith. The second book is No Doubt by John Ortberg. That is an incredibly cheesy title, um, but it's a pretty profound book. It's really good. It doesn't actually address the objections that people have to Christianity. What it it talks about is the experience of doubt. What is it like to have questions? What does it mean to have faith and hope in the midst of uncertainty? That's a great book. So if you're in the midst of some some wrestling, some doubt, I would highly recommend those books. You can find them in the bookstore if you want to check them out after the service. Well, today's question concerns the issue of exclusivity. It's the question, how can we say that there is only one way to God? How how can we say that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have God? If you don't trust in him, then you don't experience salvation and you're lost. In this message, I really want to address a few different groups of people. I, I want to address those of you who are just this close, this close to embracing Jesus you look at Jesus and you see someone who is so welcoming, so loving, so inclusive. He, you think, this guy's got to be the real thing. He's the real deal. I think that life with Jesus would be a life worth living. But then you open up the Bible and you read things like this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or, or you read something like what Peter, Jesus' closest follower, said in Acts 4. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And it feels a little extreme. How can Jesus be so gracious on the one hand and then turn to everybody who rejects him and say you're out. I condemn you. You're gone. It it, it seems a little harsh. Kind of unfair. I also want to address those of you who are this close, not to entering the faith, but to leaving it. You're this close to walking away. I think about a, a student of mine uh, back when I was a youth pastor. We were, he was a, a drummer in the band, in the youth group. He had been a leader on a bunch of mission trips. And, and we found ourselves sitting in a coffee shop, and he said to me, Clayton, I just don't know if I can believe anymore. I, I mean, I think that maybe the only reason that I believe in Jesus is because everybody around me does. I mean, what if I was born in Saudi Arabia or India or some other country? I would probably be a Muslim or a Hindu or whatever it was that the people around me believed. I I, I mean, all of those people, they say that they have experiences with God. So how can I say that my experiences are real and theirs are pretend? Everybody says they're right. How do we know that we actually have the true way? Maybe that's you. I hope we address your questions today. I also want to address those of you who are committed followers of Christ, but this aspect of our faith really troubles you. Something that that kind of nags at you. Maybe you're like the woman I was talking to at the Bartlett campus a couple of weeks ago. She asked when I was going to be speaking next and what we would be talking about. And I I told her about this, and she said, that has got to be one of my biggest questions. Because I, I look at the people around me, they're good people, people I work with, my good friends, but they don't believe in Jesus. And do I really have to say that they're lost forever? It's a good question. You ever have that feeling? You don't wanna be intolerant. You, you don't wanna tell people that they're wrong. And you certainly don't like the thought of people being rejected by God simply because they don't believe what you believe. This is a big question. There are lots of different angles that you can approach it with. As I was thinking about this, I kinda came with five questions that I felt like came up over and over again. I'm gonna put them on the screen here. The questions are this, how can God be fair If he sends people to hell for eternity, aren't all religions basically saying the same thing? Isn't being a good person enough? What about the people who have never heard? Won't believing in exclusive truth make you intolerant towards people who disagree with you? Today, we're just gonna tackle the last four of those questions. If you're interested in the issue of hell, I did teach on this back in October and we went into great depth there. I'm not gonna be able to address all of those things today. So if we walk away from today and you still got questions about that, I'm gonna encourage you to go uh, look up that message. We'll actually have the media guys put it up on, on Twitter and Facebook this week, so it's easier to find. Uh, but if, if you're still wondering about that, go check that sermon out. We're going to look at the other four questions today. And to do that, we're going to look at a passage in the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be starting in verse 16. Sometimes when people are uh, thinking about the question of exclusivity, they assume it's kind of a new question, something that's only come up in the last hundred years or so when it's been easy to travel to other countries and encounter other cultures, and we've got mass media and the internet now, and so we're exposed to all sorts of diverse perspectives. And we sometimes think that back in Bible times, people didn't have to deal with this because you know, they were kind of in insulated little communities, and they only interacted with people who kind of thought like they did, and it's only a new issue now. The the problem is that's the the wrong perspective to have on the Bible. It was actually the opposite situation for early Christians. They were a minority faith in a very pluralistic world. In in the Greco-Roman world, there were people of all different cultures and beliefs that were intermingling, and Christianity was just one of the religious options on the map. Here in Acts 17, what we have is Paul is right in the thick of all of this. He is in the city of Athens, which was a a cultural center in the ancient world. It was a place of art and ideas, a place of religion and history. It was the historic home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the birthplace of all these religious and philosophical movements. This was a, a very diverse place. And Paul has traveled there. He's been kind of going around the Roman Empire from city to city, and he's been telling people about Jesus and starting churches. And when he ends up in Athens, he kind of gets separated from his group of friends that he's been traveling with. And so he just kind of goes and explores this city to see what he can see. Let's pick it up in verse 16. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, saying that Athens was full of idols is like saying Las Vegas is full of slot machines or Disney World is full of princesses. They are everywhere. One ancient writer estimates there were upwards of 70,000 statues, ranging from just little tiny shrines to these big, massive temples. This was a very religious place. There were at least as many places of worship as there were people in the town. It was that religious. It was a very uh, diverse and pluralistic place. And so Paul comes into this place, and he just does what he always does. He starts talking to everybody about Jesus. He goes to the synagogue, and he talks to the Jews, and he goes into the marketplace, and he talks to the people there, and he ends up debating with the philosophers. And before long, he is invited to stand before the city council and to present his views to the intellectual leaders of Athens. We can pick up his speech in verse 22. It says this, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, that's the name of the council, And he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In Paul's speech here, I think that we have some insights that are going to really help us with the four questions we're looking at today. So let's jump into the first one. Sometimes people ask this question. They say, aren't all religions basically saying the same thing? Aren't they? They all seem kind of different, coming from different perspectives and angles. But when you boil it down, aren't they sort of getting at the same stuff? They're all talking about the same essential message, right? Usually when people raise this question, two images come up, two sort of uh, analogies that people bring up over and over again. One is the image of the elephant and the blind men. I don't know where this story came from, but it usually goes something like this. A group of blind men stumble upon an elephant, and each one of them ends up grabbing a different part of the animal. So one guy, he's got the leg, and he says, you know what an elephant is like? It's like a tree. It's, it's big and strong and thick. And another guy, he's like, no, 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 you're all wrong. He's got the trunk. And he says, no, um, it, it's uh, an elephant is, is flexible and long and kind of floppy. And the, another guy, he's got the tusk. And he says, oh, no, I beg to differ. An elephant is like a spear. It is, it is long and hard and sharp. And another guy, he's got the tail, and he's like, no, 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 you're all wrong. An elephant is like a rope, and it's kind of long and skinny, and it's really stinky. Uh, this guy always felt bad for him. He's kind of the butt of the story. <laughs> uh, the point of the whole story, the whole analogy, is all of the blind men are right in their own way. They all have a piece of the truth, and they all contribute to the bigger picture. The other analogy that comes up very often is the image of the mountain. The idea is that all religions start in different places on the mountain, and they travel in different routes, different paths up to the top, but they all end up in the same place up at the top where God is. So they might look like they're going in different directions and so on, but they all really end up with the same conclusion. And so the point of both of these images is that we should sort of stop worrying about converting or condemning people of different faiths, and we should start respecting and learning from one another because in the end, we're all kind of talking about the same thing. Well, what should we think about this idea? What what does Christianity actually have to say about other religions? Well, it's interesting. Here in Acts 17, we, we have this strange tension going on with what Paul is saying. There are some parts of his speech where he seems to be kind of positive about the religious life of Athens, but there are other places where he is really directly opposed to what they're doing. And I think the reason that is, is because every human religion is a mixture of three things. It's a mixture of insight, ignorance, and idolatry. All religions contain a level of insight. Paul does something kind of shocking for a lot of people here. Paul finds common ground with these pagan Athenians. Look at verse 28. He actually quotes two of their religious poets. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That that first quote there, in him we live and move or have our being, it's from the philosopher Epimenides, and he's actually talking about Zeus. He's not referring to the guy who throws thunderbolts, but he's using that term to refer to the divine presence that stands behind all of reality. The, the second quote, we are his offspring, is from the Stoic philosopher Aratus, who is also speaking about Zeus. So we know from the context that Paul is not interested in idolatry. He has no interest in any god but the biblical god. But at the same time, he's willing to find common ground with these people of other religions. He, he knows that they're searching for truth, and sometimes they find something. They get something right. And so he says, when you think about the Most High God... When you think about the divine and you realize that he is the source of life, that he's the ever-present power behind all of existence, that's a real insight. And so you and I, we shouldn't be surprised that when we talk with people of different faiths, that they might say something really profound or, or say something really true. Because every religion contains insight. At the same time, though, every religion is full of ignorance. Look at how Paul addresses this in verse 23. He says as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god so you are ignorant to the very thing that you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you as Paul studies Athenian culture he notices a place where their knowledge has hit a dead end a place where they've got a blank spot on their map a place where their answers have failed Every religion has these places, places where you can't answer the question in terms that are consistent with the rest of the worldview, these places of ignorance. And ideally, when you find these places, they should open you up uh, to, to humbly search for new truth. Paul's hoping that this is what's going to happen with the Athenians there, here, that because they have admitted their ignorance in this one area, that they're going to be open to revelation from God. Every religion has a mix of both insight and ignorance. But it also has a big dose of idolatry. When Paul first arrives in Athens, it says that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Much of of modern philosophy from Freud to Feuerbach to Nietzsche to Marx have said that religion is often not about a God who has made us in his image. It's about the way that we have made God in our own image. And I actually think that these philosophers are right. So much of our religion is about projecting ourselves onto the divine, which means in my case, God is a very good-looking man. It's interesting. These modern philosophers are not the first people to actually come up with this idea. It is actually a fundamental biblical insight. It's what the Bible means when it uses the term idolatry. Idolatry is when we project our own values, our own opinions, our own priorities onto God. That's why religion is so full of corruption and abuse. We end up worshiping our own power and success. We use religion to justify our ambitions or to reinforce our cultural values. We use religion to coerce and control. It brings shame on some people and helps other people feel superior. Idolatry is the reason that religion is so shot through with error and with evil. And it's what makes dealing with religion so hard because all religion is a mixed bag. It may have some insight, but it is full of ignorance and idolatry at the same time. And what is so hard about this is that every religious path has a different mix of insight and ignorance and idolatry. That's why religions disagree so much. And it's something we've got to be honest about. Most of the time when people say, aren't all religions the same, they usually don't have a a very deep knowledge of any religion. They, They kind of assume real generalities about it. But it's pretty obvious that different religions say things that are logically incompatible with each other. Let me give you an example just about the nature of God in the world. Christians, we say, that God is distinct from the world, that he exists as one God in three persons, and that that god became a human being died and rose again because he loves the world that he made. Hindus on the other hand will say everything is god and god is everything. The world and the god and god are the same thing. The divine is expressed in an infinite number of ways in all that exists. But Muslims that hear both of those statements and they say that is blasphemy. There is one God, and he is utterly distinct from the world, and he never became a human being, and he has revealed himself through the prophet Muhammad. And then the Buddhists, on the other hand, they say there is no God, because Buddhism is a non-theistic religion that's really about how to escape from the world of suffering. And so even with just these four, the, the four biggest religions in the world, we have a problem. Unless you throw logic out the window, all four of those things can't be true at the same time. Some of them must be wrong. Maybe all of them are wrong, but one thing is for sure they cannot all be right. And and these are not minor, superficial claims within these religions. These are core, fundamental premises of each of the faiths. And so that's what's wrong with the mountain analogy here. First of all, no one agrees about what is at the top. They they say, Is there a God? What's God like? Uh, What are we going to find there? What's the nature of reality? But the real problem is actually this. And I got this insight from an author named Sky Jathani. He says, the mountain is actually upside down. It should be more like this. It is not that all religions start in different places and end up in the same place. It's actually that all religions start in the same place and end up in different places. The idea is this. that All religions look at the world and they say, something is wrong here. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. This is a world of suffering and pain and fear and danger and scarcity. And there are all sorts of problems in the world. And when they look at those problems, they start to diagnose it and they start to offer solutions. And before long, they're all going in wildly divergent paths, going in different directions where they end up in different places. And so in the end, they don't all end up in the same place. They all go in wildly different places. The reason this is also so difficult is because on our own, it is impossible for us to figure out which of these paths and what about those paths is insightful, what's ignorant, and what's idolatrous. On our own, we can't sort out the difference between all of them. This is what's wrong with the whole story about the elephant too. Most of the time when people tell that story, they conclude, don't you see that all religions are true? But that's actually the opposite conclusion you should get from that story. The conclusion you should make is this all of those guys who had a hold of the elephant were wrong. They weren't actually describing what an elephant is like at all. An elephant isn't like a tree. It's not like a rope. It's not like a spear. It's not like a hose. It's not like any of those things. That's not at all like an elephant. And so what we should say is that all religions basically are in the dark. Everybody is blind. And the Bible actually agrees with this. The Bible actually says on our own, We cannot sort out what is true or false about God. We've got a little bit of information about God from creation, but it's a pretty limited window into what God is actually like. Unless you get an outside perspective on what God is like, you are in the dark. And that's the second problem with the elephant story. You know who the only person in the story is who describes the elephant accurately? It's the person telling the story. They're the only person who isn't blind. They're the only person with their eyes open. And so there's this kind of built-in arrogance to the story. I don't think people intend it this way, but there's this built-in arrogance to the story because the person telling the story assumes this all-knowing, all-seeing perspective. And what they're essentially saying to all of these devoutly religious people is, you know what? You all have it wrong, and if you could just see what I see, if you could just know what I know, then you would know the truth. I'm here to correct all of you. But the only way they could do this, the only way the storyteller could do that is if they could claim not to be blind, or if they had the authority of someone else who could actually see. If they could find someone who had actually seen God, who could give eyewitness testimony to what he was like, then they would be able to correct the blind men. They could actually say with some authority what was going on. So I think in answer to the first question, are all religions saying the same thing? The answer is no. And if we want to sort out who is right and who is wrong, we are going to need someone from the outside, someone who has actually seen God for himself, to tell us the truth about God. Sound familiar? Let's go into the second question. Isn't being a good person enough? Maybe you're thinking, okay, all right, all religions disagree about some of the big stuff, like what's God like, the, the big theology questions. But don't they all agree on something like, like morality? Like, they all agree that we're trying to be a good person, that, that we, we, we should all agree on some basic moral principles, and they're all kind of, you know, even if they don't get the stuff up here right, they can all help you be a good person. And in the end, isn't that what counts? Isn't being a good person what matters? And that's a good question. I mean, we all have this sense that, Our behavior matters, and all of us want to be good people. We all sense, even if it's kind of vague, that God or the universe or whatever's out there is going to be on the side of good and opposed to evil, and that at some level we're accountable for our actions. And the Bible affirms this. Look at what Paul says in verse 31. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. So if there's a God, we are answerable to him. And so the question becomes, what standard does God use to judge people on the day of judgment? Is it simply enough to just be a good, decent, moral person? I mean, if you're a good person, surely God's going to accept you, right? Well, let's think about this for a second. The first thing we need to know is that The the reality is religions actually do disagree about morality pretty significantly. There's not a whole lot of overlap in in many areas between different religions. Uh, But that aside, there are some basic things that most religions say. Uh, I actually found a list. Someone compiled this list uh, of uh, uh, moral principles that are agreed upon. I'll put it on the screen here. And so let's assume just for a second that this list up here is the, the description of a good person. We got the list good okay um that this is the description of a good person and that if you're this sort of person that in the end you're going to be all right with God okay let's go through and actually take a survey and see how we're doing with this list so I want you to raise your hand as I go through the principles if you have ever violated that rule okay (laughs) how many of you have ever harmed another person through your words or actions Okay, we could probably stop there. Um, How many of you have ever disrespected your parents? I think my parents are in the room, so I better raise my hand. How many of you have ever mistreated your siblings? One of my sisters is here, so I'll raise my hand. Children, the elderly. I'm going to skip the next one. Um, That could be weird. Um, How many of you have ever stolen or cheated? Lied or deceived? How many of you have ever failed to care for those weaker or less fortunate than you? If I put a time frame of today on this list, we still wouldn't be doing that well, would we? You see, this is the problem. Listen to what Pastor John Burke says about this. He says, what do all of the world's religions teach us? That we're royal screw-ups, myself included, Jews and Christians, Muslims and Buddhists. The world is a mess. We all know the right things to do. They've been in our culture and religious tradition. They're on our hearts. And yet the history of humanity shows that we all fall short. We can't live up to what we know to be right. So in this sense, there is universal truth communicated through all the major world's religions. Here it is. People have a problem. We cannot be who we are intended to be without God. None of us are going to be able to stand up before God on the final day and say, you know what? I'm a decent person. I'm a moral person that you should be okay with me. None of us are going to be able to make a convincing case if that is our plea. You see, the human race has a deadly disease. Sin is a condition that kills every person who has it. And you know what trying to be good is like? It is like trying to fight cancer with diet and exercise. It might be a good thing for you. It might not be bad for you. But it doesn't matter how much you can bench press or what your resting heart rate is. Cancer will still kill you. What you really need is a cure, not fitness. And see, that's the other problem with this whole mountain image. I mean, if we think that that religion is all about us getting from the bottom of the mountain down here to where God is up here, then we're all doomed. Because none of us are capable of climbing that mountain. It is worse than Everest. If we try to climb it, we are going to be faced with sheer cliffs with no handholds. Not a person is going to make it up the mountain. Which is why... The gospel, the central message of Christianity, is so radical in contrast with the predominant message of the world's religions. The message is this. We are not responsible for going up the mountain to find God. God is going to come down the mountain, has come down the mountain to find us. What we need is not to be good people. What we need is a good savior. Let's move on to the third question. What about people who have never heard? What about people who have never heard? How many of you have ever played the card game Mao? Have you ever played this game? Okay, the idea behind this card game is it is forbidden to tell new players what the rules of the game are. Uh, they don't know the point of the game. They don't know the goal. They don't know how to win. What happens is if they break a rule, you just penalize them and don't tell them what the rule was. It's a very fun game if you know what you're doing. Uh, if you don't, it makes you want to break things. Um, the question here. Is, is God playing a game of Mao with the human race? Do the people who have had the rules explained to them have an advantage over those, of you, the, those who haven't? The thing about Mao is it can be fun because you get a chance to play a second and a third game. You can figure things out and acquire knowledge that will benefit you later. But with life, it's a one and done sort of deal. You, you live once and then you're judged. I, I can imagine a situation where the first Christian missionaries show up in a village, say Papua New Guinea, someplace remote. And they, they show up just as the village is wrapping up with a funeral for a beloved member of the community. And, and the, the missionaries, somehow they've learned the language of the, the people there already. And so they just get started right away. They start sharing the good news about Jesus. And they say, if you want to know God, if you want to spend eternity with him, then you've got to believe in Jesus. And at that point... The chief of the, villages, chief of the village says, Are you telling me that if you had shown up one day earlier, that this woman that we just buried would have had a chance to go to heaven? But because your boat was delayed, she's in hell. It's a really good question. It's a really hard question. And the hard part is that we simply do not have a clear, direct answer. The Bible doesn't just come out and say the answer to this question. And people throughout the ages have disagreed about how to answer it. The passage that gets closest to addressing it is one here in Acts 17. Verse 26, Paul says that God has chosen the times and the places where each people group on the planet get to live. And God isn't haphazard about this. In verse 27, Paul says that his purpose in all of this was so that people would have a chance to know him. He says this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So so that's a little bit hopeful, but it's still a little vague. There's a a hesitancy there. He says, perhaps reach out and find him. And and the word that he uses for reach out kind of evokes the image of someone who's searching in the dark, trying to grope for something that they're not even sure if it's there. So we're left kind of unsure of what to think about this. I'm not going to be able to totally resolve this question today, but I, I do want to offer you four things that I, I think I can say with some confidence, okay? There are going to be a little bit of tension here, but I can say this. The first is, I think God judges people based on what they have access to. Uh, At the beginning of this sermon series, Pastor Jim preached two sermons. He he preached one sermon that was about the resurrection of Jesus. He gave all sorts of evidence that that was true. And the evidence came from the Bible, from eyewitness accounts of people who were alive in Jesus' day, who had seen the empty tomb. And he used all this evidence to make a case for that. The second sermon that he gave was evidence for the existence of God. And what he drew upon there were things like creation and our conscience and our desire for something beyond this world. The sorts of experiences that anybody can have, that anybody has access to. Not everybody has access to the first set of evidence, but everybody has access to the second. So in one sense, you can think of the world as divided into people who have heard both the first and the second sermon and some people who have only heard the second sermon. If you have heard the first sermon, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead then you are accountable for how you respond to that message. That is the thing that determines your standing with God both now and in eternity. Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? Do you trust him with your life? That is the deciding factor. But if someone has only heard the first sermon, I think it's fair to say that they are assessed on how they respond to that. If they look at creation, they say that someone had to have made this. There's got to be a creator there, and that person deserves my respect and gratitude. They, they have a sense of inner right and wrong, and they say, if there's a law, there's got to be a lawgiver, and I probably should do what's right, and when I do what's wrong, I should seek mercy, because I know that I don't even live up to what my conscience tells me. Act Acts 17, God is not very far from any of us. He wants to be found. And so I think that if someone seeks God on whatever evidence they have, that God is going to judge a person's life based on their response to that. You don't have to know everything about God to have an appropriate response to him, I like the way Ravi Zacharias puts it. He says, what does an infant know of his mother? She know, he knows that she nourishes him, she changes him, she embraces him, she kisses him, she must be a friend. That child doesn't know his mother as well as he will when he's 18, but he knows her enough to love her. I believe that as God reveals himself, there are levels of understanding that are bound to vary. Now, that's uh, probably a, a reassuring thought for many of you. But it's important that you hear the second thing I'm going to tell you because there's a tension between these two things, and it's, it's hard to resolve, okay? The second thing is this. Everyone is guilty and deserving of condemnation. Everyone is guilty and deserving of condemnation. One thing that is absolutely clear throughout the Bible is this. No one is worthy of God's kindness, No one earns salvation. No one deserves it, no matter who we are. All of us have enough knowledge of God and of right and wrong that when we do wrong, we are guilty for it. Romans 1 says it like this. This is Paul, the same guy who's speaking in Athens. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and understood from what has been made. And here's the key part. So that people are without excuse. People are without excuse. All of us is guilty. Look at what Ecclesiastes says. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does right and never sins. This means that if God decided to condemn each and every one of us, he would be just in doing so. God is not obligated to save us, and you cannot get into heaven on a loophole. If anyone is saved, whether they have heard the name of Jesus or not, It is because God graciously decides to forgive them. He graciously decides to apply the work of Christ to their life. And it may sound harsh, but if God chooses to condemn everyone, it would be completely just and fair for him to do so. He's allowed to do it. And so we're left in this place of uncertainty. How can we know for sure if someone is saved? And the Bible gives one answer loud and clear on this one. The only sure way to know that someone is saved is if they believe in Jesus. That is it. God may be gracious to someone who hasn't heard, but that is his business. The only assurance we have been given that's about someone's eternal destiny is if they explicitly put their trust in Jesus. There is no confidence outside of that. And that's why Paul is doing what he's doing in Athens and in every city that he travels to. That's why he is so earnest to tell people about Jesus. He is going to places where people have never heard because this message is critical. It's the reason why Jesus has sent out all of his people, that's us, to every corner of the world, to every tribe and tongue and nation, to proclaim a a sure way to know God. God does not want people to be in the dark. He does not want them to live in uncertainty. He wants everyone to know the way to know him. And the only sure way to know that, the only sure way to be saved is to believe in Jesus. Here's the final thing I'm going to say on this question. And it's really the most important thing. If it is true that God is the type of God who would become human, die an agonizing death and do it for people that hated him in order to save them, even though they didn't deserve it, then that is a God who loves people. We are not more compassionate than God. We are not more just than God. If Jesus really died on the cross, then it means that God loves people more than any of us ever could. And he will go to incredible lengths to save the people that he loves. Acts 17, 31, Paul says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And that man is the one who suffered and died for us, which means he can be trusted to make a decision that is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And so I don't know exactly what God is gonna do with people who haven't heard, but I do know this, that one day, heaven is gonna be full of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and that no one is gonna turn to Jesus on that day and say, you know what, you did it wrong. Everybody's gonna say, this was the best way it could have turned out, you did it right Jesus let me finish up with the final question here do exclusive religious beliefs lead to intolerance and conflict if you claim to know the truth if you claim to have the one way to God will that make you a hateful hurtful intolerant person towards people who disagree with you and the obvious answer is yes of course that is a possibility it happens all the time just read the news ISIS, Boko Haram, Israel, Palestine, Muslims and Hindus in India. And if you go into history, you can pick someone from every religion. I can give you thousands of examples of religiously motivated wars and persecution, ways people have been marginalized by religion, all driven by the fact that one group of people thought that their way was right and the other people were wrong. And more than that, I don't just have to go to the news. I don't have to just go to history. I can actually give you examples from the Bible. The the most famous example is this. There was a religious leader among the Jews in Jerusalem. And when the first person was ever killed for following Jesus, this was one of the guys who organized the execution. And then after that, he started organizing groups of people to go from city to city to arrest and murder Christians. He, He was systematically trying to eliminate followers of Jesus wherever they were, simply because he thought that his way was right and they were dead wrong. Who is that guy? Paul. The guy who in this passage is speaking to the Athenians. And look at how things have changed from him once he became a follower of Jesus. Look at how things are different. He goes from town to town and everywhere he goes, he is opposed and he is, he is persecuted. He is, he is arrested. He is driven out of cities again and again and again. And what does Paul do in response? Does he fight back? Does he get angry and hostile? No. No. How does he engage with people who disagree with him? With respect, with gentleness, with kindness. He says what he thinks, but he does so in a gracious way. The reason this is, though, is not because Paul has gone from having exclusive beliefs to having non exclusive beliefs. He hasn't, he hasn't been, become any less exclusive than he did before. He is adamant. Jesus is the one way to God. There is only one way. He is the one savior. And he says it again and again and again. He is just as exclusive as he was before. But here's the thing. Everyone, at some level, has to make exclusive claims you got to say, there are some things I think are true about God and the world and morality, and there are some things I think are false. There are some things I think are good, and some things I think are bad. You've got to make some exclusive claims. So the question is not, will you make an exclusive claim or not? The question is, how will your exclusive claims lead you to treat people who disagree with you? How will they make you act towards outsiders? Some uh, exclusive religious beliefs lead to intolerance. They can make you arrogant. They can make you hostile towards other people. But not all exclusive beliefs do that, and certainly not the gospel. The gospel, this message of Christianity, should make you humble, just like it did for Paul. Because here's the Christian message. We believe that human beings beings universally have rejected God, that all of us are guilty, all of us deserve condemnation. And yet, God continues to love us. He continues to be kind to us, so much so that he would come and become a human being to save us from ourselves, that in the person of Jesus, God died the death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and he was raised to life so that we could live with him forever. Jesus didn't deserve it, but he took it anyway, even for people who are his enemies. And if that is our exclusive belief, if that's what we take and internalize and say, this is the core reality about the world and it's gonna be the core reality about my life, that is naturally going to lead to kindness, to tolerance, to more than that, to sacrificial love. If you believe that you are a sinner, that you're not deserving of God's kindness, then when you encounter someone of another faith, and they are a morally superior person to you, you're not going to be surprised. You're going to respect that. If you believe that you have been given undeserved grace and kindness, then you're going to turn around and you're going to give that undeserved grace and kindness to everybody, no matter who they are, what they believe, or what they've done. If your exclusive belief is that there is a God who laid down his life for his enemies, then you're going to be willing to suffer and serve people who disagree with you. If you take the gospel seriously, it is not going to make you an intolerant person. It's going to make you a gracious person. All of these questions are really hard. They, they, they are tough, tough questions. They are intellectually hard. You've got to wrestle with some hard things. They are emotionally hard. We're, we're talking about eternal life and death here. And so if you're like me, you're thinking about real people, specific people you know that don't know Jesus. So this isn't just head work, this is heart work. If you're walking away from today and you still have unresolved questions and emotions, that's okay. It probably means you're taking this stuff seriously. And I want to tell you this, wherever you're at with your questions, I want to tell you that you are in the right place. This might come as a surprise to you, but the church is actually the best place to be when you have doubts. This isn't supposed to be a place where everybody's got all the answers and it's neatly packaged up and they've got no questions. This is a place for honest questions. It's a place for real searching. It's a place for exploration where you can seek the truth. And the reason that is, is because we believe that in honest questions and in real seeking, that's where Jesus finds us. I'm going to pray now. After that, the band is going to come up here and we're going to sing another song. We're going to pass the offering bags. In Acts 17, Paul said this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. So as we sing, as we give our offerings, we don't do it because God needs it. We don't do it because we're trying to earn points with him. We're not trying to be obligated to to him. We do it because God has given us everything we have. It's all his. And our offering is a celebration. It's an expression of thanks to him because he has been so kind to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are so loving and kind to us. We thank you that rather than making us climb up the mountain to find you, you sent Jesus down the mountain to find us. We thank you that you don't despise our questions, that you welcome our honest inquiry. God, we ask that you would give us faith to believe, even in the midst of doubts. Give us hope to hold on, even in the midst of uncertainty. Give us love for you and for the people that you love, especially for people who don't yet know about you. God, as we, as we sing and we give our gifts now, we offer these up to you as an act of gratitude, of praise to you, because you are not far from any of us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.